0: 2 Corinthians 9.1, Paul says, It is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said that you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, He is distributed freely, He is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever." Now, he's talking about God in verse 10 when he says this. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the need of the saints, but is also overflowing, there's that word, is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So I want to talk to you today about living a life of intentional release. And although I'd love to spend time doing a balancing act between those four things that I mentioned, your time, your natural and supernatural giftings and abilities, your money and your opportunities, I'm just going to focus on the money one today. And I don't preach on this much around here. We probably ought to preach more about it. I'll I'll say this. I have no idea what you give or whether you give have no clue who gives what in this whole assembly. I know what my family gives, and I, if you're curious about what I give, I'm an open book. You can contact our financial secretary in the office or our CFO, Greg Mason, say Jeff said from the pulpit he'd let us look at his giving. I don't mind you looking at that because I'm nothing to hide. Why? Because my giving is just like my worship on the front row on Sunday mornings. I'm not trying to be private with it. I'm not trying to publicize it either, but I'm just saying this. It's unto the Lord, and I'm not ashamed of it. And so when it comes to this issue of giving, we all must reach that place where it's not an awkward thing, it's not a a delicate thing, it's not the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about, and we certainly don't want to ever risk doing like Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts chapter 5, where they pretended to be worshipers and givers, and they were exposed as fraudulent and were judged by the Lord for it. So what's the balance? Well, I believe the balance is found in the attitude and the posture of our heart concerning giving, and that's mostly what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and we're going to focus on chapter 9. So let's go to the first four verses, and let's talk about what I'm going to call the components of exemplary giving. I use the word exemplary to mean this. I don't want you getting by in your giving. I don't want you just doing it out of a... Beautiful habit that you're supposed to give, but it's absent of joy, it's absent of faith, it's absent of peace, and it's full of fear or, or grudging kind of attitude. You need to be free to live in an exemplary we- level of giving. And here's some components of it. The first one is this remember that your giving impacts others. Now, Paul uses a big word in verse number one that I didn't even know what it meant. And then, you know, I talk pretty good, but I had no idea what superfluous meant. Can't even say it. So whatever that word is, it means this. It means going above and beyond unnecessarily. Paul's saying it would be over the top for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. I need to give you some background info here. Just stick track with me for a minute. Paul is referencing an offering that the Churches that he has planted as the apostle, the chief apostle in that day, he's raising money for the poor Christians who are still in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, when you got saved, you're in the heart of Judaism, and those early Christians were getting persecuted, they were having their property taken away from them, people refused to do business with them, so they lost their businesses. In many cases, the, the fathers, sometimes even the fathers and mothers were carted off to prison or even executed for being a follower of Jesus. So, they were heavily persecuted, which resulted in a poverty, a, a financial poverty there in Jerusalem. So, Paul was burdened for this, and he's going around to the Gentile churches, and he's saying, we need to take take up money for the mother church back in Jerusalem. And he'd been doing that for about a year and now the time was coming for the church at Corinth to ante up. They were supposed to give what they had promised to give. And so Paul is saying here, hey look I really don't have to explain to you again the dynamics of the offering that you've already agreed to. That would be superfluous. I don't have to do that again. I don't need to talk to you about the ministry of the saints. The reason why I didn't have to talk to him them about it then Because he had talked to him about it before. What did he tell him? He said, This we are all one family. We're the body of Christ, we are the bride of Christ. We are eternally connected. We call each other brother and sister. We have the same Father, Father God in heaven, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are one. So we are no longer our own, but we are connected together. Therefore, all that we are and all that we have is meant to be viewed not as an individual possession, but as an entrusted possession that we are to seek God's heart over to find out how he wants us to use it. And so, they had already been told all of that, and the impact of that is this, that our giving, as he's going to say here, our giving actually impacts other people. Though it is an act of worship between a Christian and his or her God, the ramifications of our giving impacts other people. So, we'll see that as we go through this. But look in verse 2, as we're talking about these components of exemplary giving, Paul kind of pushes back against the idea that giving's just supposed to be some spontaneous, flowy thing. Look what he says. He says, I know your readiness, your preparedness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. So, Paul wanted them to know a year ahead of time hey, at this point next year, we're going to be taking up this offering. I want you to pray about it. I want you to set funding aside. I want you to be intentional and I want you to be prepared about it. Now, a year had passed and the time was coming. So, when I see this, I recognize this component in Scripture because I get it, especially for people who are given to the things of the Spirit. Sometimes we over spiritualize stuff and we can say, Well, I didn't feel led to give. Well, I'll just be honest with you. If that's your answer every time there's an offering or a need that arises, I didn't feel led to give, friend, you got lead poisoning, amen? (laughs) Because we don't have to feel led uh, subjectively to something that we're invited into objectively. And so when the Lord has said, hey, you're going to be a giver because the giver lives inside of you, but the person says, I just didn't feel led to give, that's a cop-out. And so what Paul is saying is, no, we actually need to prepare ahead of time. We need to plan ahead of time. Now, I don't want to get lost in the weeds on this. I want to kind of keep it up in the principles, but what's cool about verse number two is Paul mentions, he had already talked in chapter eight about the poor church in Jerusalem and they were poverty stricken. And then he mentions these Christians over here outside of Corinth, they're in Macedonia and they were, they were less wealthy than the Corinthians were. And so we get this picture of this, that the wealthy, the less wealthy, and the impoverished are all working together as one. The wealthy and the less wealthy pooling their resources together in order to meet the kingdom needs of those that can't meet their own needs. And that's what the Lord calls love. That means when we give, it's not only an act of obedience and an act of worship, but when we actually think through it, it's an act of love, because by faith, when we release our funds into the kingdom, and we have confidence that those funds are being stewarded by those appointed, let's say in the context of a local church, that those those funds are going out, and they're blessing, and they're helping people, so again, our lives intersect over this issue of giving. And by the way, he says at the end of verse 2, he gives us this little indication that their giving was prioritized because he says, your zeal for the offering has stirred up the Christians in Macedonia. So the Macedonian Christians caught wind that the more wealthy Corinthian Christians were getting stirred up about this offering. The Macedonians don't have as much, but they can still participate. So this zeal by the wealthy people connected to this zeal of the less wealthy people to benefit the impoverished people. Well, what does that teach us? It teaches this, that we shouldn't be reluctant or feel dismal or feel kind of like uh, presumed upon when this issue of giving is brought into the topic of discussion. We should say, hallelujah, teach me how to give better, Lord. Lord, give me greater opportunities to give better. Give me greater resources to give better. Lord, stretch my faith and increase my dependence. I want to hear more about giving. Holy Spirit, speak to me, teach me, train me, stretch me. Now that's a rare response because I've found in 25 years almost of local church work, 20, almost 23 years, I've found that a lot of people are reluctant when it comes to this issue. Occasionally, you'll get this rabid giver who's just a fanatic. I mean, just like, can I give? Can I give? Is there a need? I like to give. I like to give. And I love those people, but they're actually very rare. And by the way, they're not always wealthy. And so what we find here is it doesn't really matter if you're wealthy or not wealthy. The reality is, is that we partner together in a posture of the heart that says, I want to honor the Lord, and I want to help others, and I want to be a part of what God is doing, and that should result in zeal. We should be stirred up. Every now and then, Dustin will say, don't you love to give right before we take up an offering? And you hear like three people say, yeah! And the rest of it's like, ugh, it's like the air coming out of a balloon. But the reality is we ought to grow in this. We should grow to the place where, we're like, yeah, I actually love to give. You know, we we have so many opportunities to believe what the Lord says. Paul was writing in another place, and he quoted Jesus in a statement that is actually not found in the gospel. So it was something that Paul got, but it was written. It's inspired in scripture, so we know it's true. Jesus made this very general but dogmatic statement. He says, it is better for you to give than to receive. Now, Jesus said that. Jesus, who can't be mistaken and obviously never lies, says, hey, Jeff, Jeff, it is so much better for you to be the giver than the receiver. Hey, Landon, it is so much better for you to be the giver than receiver. At Elijah, it's better for you to be the giver than receiver. And our flesh wants to step in front of us and say, uh, hold on, I'd like a moment to debate with you on that. Because our flesh doesn't feel that way. And of course, Jesus is never trying to communicate with our, tr- our flesh. He always wants to crucify our flesh. And so, what he's saying is, here is, I'm actually not talking to your flesh. I'm talking to my, my spirit within you. So, we, we're inhabited by the giver. And Jesus' whole life was about giving until there was nothing left to give. And so, he lays down his life, and that same giver lives within us. And Paul is saying here, as Jesus zealously lived his life for the joy that was set before him, he was able to endure all the things that it required of him. So go a little bit further into verse number three. Paul is now getting practical. He's saying, you've been zealous for this offering for a year, but there seems to be something that has happened where Paul's getting a little concerned. Maybe that initial zeal has waned. Maybe it's tapered off a little bit. So he says in verse three, so I'm sending the brothers... So that our boasting about you may not prove vain or empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Now, Paul is an apostle. I mean, he raises people from the dead. He operates in signs, wonders, apostolic power, but he was always very reluctant to assert his apostolic authority. He didn't go around all bowed up and strutting, trying to scare people or intimidate people into don't mess with the Apostle Paul. And so what he's saying here, you can read between the lines, and if you read the rest of the letter, he's doing this in several places. He's telling them what they're going to do without strong-arming them or overwhelming their ability to say yes i'll do it he's not controlling them but he is directing them into the best that god has to offer and so he says hey by the way i'm sending a couple of my fellas up there <laughs> and uh they're just gonna show up and make sure you guys do what you already agreed to say that or already agreed to, to do they're just gonna come up there and help you make sure you follow through on their offering I kind of like that because he's being strong, but he's not being overly invasive, but at least, hallelujah, he's given them a warning that help is on the way. And so it impacts our testimony. Um, Well, verse 3 just reminds us of this, first of all. Reminds us that we're accountable. Don't miss that. The Corinthians were accountable for their giving. They weren't only accountable to God, because we like to do that. Well, I'm accountable to God. Well, yeah, I am too. We're accountable to God. But as the body of Christ, we're actually accountable to each other. Um, when, when I became a member of what was then Meadow Baptist Church uh, in 1994, um, and I looked over the church covenant and I read the church constitution, and it was really boring, but I remember one part that it was part of what I was agreeing to do, and I took it very seriously. It said I would support that church with my time and my service and my finances. And I remember looking at that, and I'm thinking, I'm, getting, I'm about to get baptized, and I'm about to enter an agreement with this, and I recognized as a brand new Christian, Oh, this isn't just a vertical gig. This is me, God, and everybody else that I'm connected to. And I recognize that accountability upon my life. And so when Paul is saying the brothers are coming up because you're connected to them, Corinth, I'm sending them because you're connected to me, Corinth, and we're going to make sure we get that offering taken care of because you agreed with the churches of Macedonia to help the church in Jerusalem, we're all connected. So I want you to think about this, and when it comes to giving, yes, it is an individual act of worship between you and God, but it's also connected to everybody else. You know, if you're a giver in this house, you're probably assuming that everybody else that has said yes to this house is also giving, and that would be, uh, I think, a well-grounded assumption, but I'll just be honest with you, not because I know anything, but I know know Christians. Not everybody's giving, and so we don't want to live as people that said, yes, we're going to support, we're going to engage, we're going to receive the ministry. We're going to be blessed, we're going to be cared for, we're going to be shepherded, we're going to be taught, they're going to help our children, they're going to help us in crisis, we're going to be there, but we ain't given. We don't want to do that. There's a Greek word for that type of person, you know what it is? Freeloader, amen? It's a freeloader. That's, that's probably not very pastorally diplomatic, but it's true. It comes to a place where we've got to realize, well, wait a minute, man, I, I don't want to be receiving from something. And not investing in that very thing that's giving back blessing on my life. Why? Because verse number four, it impacts our testimony. He says this, Paul says, otherwise, I'm sending the brothers up there to get that offering ready. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and they find that you're not ready on that offering, Paul says, we'd be humiliated. And then he says, to say nothing of you being humiliated. Paul said, I'd be humiliated because I'm so confident in you that you're going to do what is right. One of the things that we we need to consider is is our giving is a component of our testimony, that we can say all the right things, sing all the right things, preach all the right things, pray all the right things, but when it comes to this issue of giving, if our, our hands are held and folded in our lap and refuse to move, it's actually a negative mark on our testimony. Now, somebody might say, yeah, but nobody knows. Really? Have you ever heard of an omniscient God? He knows. Now, listen, I don't want to motivate anybody by guilt, but I do want us to think through the challenges that often find us as we, uh, we process this. Poor little thing. That's the way some of y'all feel on the inside. She's just letting it out. <laughs> Preaching on giving. Ah! It's an object lesson. Thank you, Holy Spirit. So these components of giving are important. I want you to think through it. Even if you're a faithful giver, let's think through these things, okay? Your giving recognizes others. It means, oh, there's a need beyond me. That's Jesus. Jesus is just always, when he's moving inside of us, he's taking you outside of yourself. He's taking you beyond yourself. Oh, my giving, that's not just you know, tipping God when the bucket is passed. It's, it's actually, there's some practical impact. Your giving is planned for and prepared. Don't do it just kind of spontaneously. Pray about it. It's an act of worship. Um, I, I thank God for the new ways we can give digitally, and we can give in the boxes on the back wall back there when you leave, and we can give when the buckets are passed. We can give by text. But however you give, whatever the mode is, do make it an act of worship. Um, Even if you're set up for recurring giving, it just takes the amount out of your out of your account every week, just take a moment that week and say, Lord, I know it's coming out on Monday or Sunday or whenever it happens, but Lord, I just want to thank you. You've supplied for me again. You've blessed me again. You've fed me again. You've sheltered me again. You've given me clothes. You've given me transportation. You've let me sow into ministry. You've helped me in so many different ways. Thank you. It's my joy to give this back in to who you are and what you're doing. Thank you, Lord. Just make it an act of worship. 30 seconds of intentional release takes it from paying a bill. That's the, when, I, when I pay Jackson EMC every month, $245. That's a lot of money for electricity, but that's what I pay, $245. I don't call them up and say, hey, thank you. Thanks for supplying my, you guys are awesome. I don't know what I would do without, you. you know why? Because it's a bill, it's not worship. With God, it's not a bill. It's worship, it's personal. And so make it Planned and prepared for and recognize that it impacts people. So go down into verses 5 and 7. Let's talk about our attitudes in exemplary giving. And your giving will never rise above your attitude more than likely because your attitude will eventually tell you to stop A good attitude will tell you to start if you never had. A Holy Spirit attitude will keep you always seeking the Lord. What do you want me to do? I know I've been giving this way. Is there something I need to change? Is there a different place I need to emphasize? Lord, speak to me. So we need to keep our attitudes fresh about giving. That's why I'm preaching this to a lot of people in the room who are matured or maturing in their giving. So first of all, verse number five lets us know this, that... Our giving is done in a spirit or an attitude of being faithful over a long period of time and always being willing to give. So Paul writes this, he says, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and to arrange in advance for the gift that you promised. Why? So that it may be ready as a eulogia. It's a Greek word translated here, a willing gift. It's translated most often as blessing so that it may be ready as a blessing. It's often translated also, it means praise. So your giving may be praise and blessing unto God instead of an exaction. You know what it means when somebody exacts something from you? Uh, Let's just keep it in the context of money. They say, hey, what you got in your hand? I I got 10, $10 bills. They say, I'll take that. That's an exaction. Did you give it? Not really, but it's gone. And that's not what Paul wants our giving to be. He doesn't want us to view God or the church or Paul in this context to the leaders as coming and saying, what you got, it's mine. That's not the way we're to operate. That's not the attitude of giving. It's supposed to be open-handed as a blessing and a praise unto the Lord. It speaks of our willingness It speaks of our zeal, as he mentions in this passage. It speaks of our desire to be participating in what the Lord is facilitating. And so he's telling them, Yes, I'm sending the brothers up there ahead of time so we can get arranged what you said you were going to do. Now, that may be a word. I actually feel a little bit of the Holy Spirit on this. A lot of us start out well in giving, and then our lifestyle changes. Maybe we get married. And then all of a sudden you've got combined expenses, maybe you don't have a combined income, maybe it's time to buy a house, and then, hey, you know, you need a car, and then maybe two cars, and the furniture's getting old, and then out pop a couple of babies, and you've got, you know, diapers, and formula, and childcare, and all And all of a sudden the expenses grow, and we, this is what we often do. We say, well, I." I've got to pay my bills. I've got to keep my standard of living. I can't say no to much, but maybe I don't have to give as much anymore. And almost without fail, it seems that the one place that is to be the prioritized place of our finances becomes the optional place. Listen, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. If I haven't burst yours yet, please don't let it burst on this. When we look in Scripture, from Old Testament to New Testament, God's expectations of our giving giving can be summarized with the term first fruits. First fruits. You're probably familiar with tithe. And if you're wondering, I don't preach the tithe. Say, Hallelujah! Where do I sign up at Newbridge Church? Jeff doesn't believe in the tithe. You know why I don't believe in the tithe? Because I believe it results in a mindless, mathematical approach to giving that almost never meets the level that God empowers us to give. In other words, people can feel fine because they take their, their gross pay that, or net pay and they divide it by 10 and they say, I'm a faithful giver because I give that much. How do you know? How do you know that that's being faithful? Because it's, it's trusting in math and an Old Testament principle. Rather than saying first fruits, what was first fruits? It's the top of what you get and it's the best of what you get and you offer it unto the Lord. And so God literally, his, his, his overarching formula for our financial giving is, God says this, and he's God, so he gets to say, he says, hey, children, me first. God says, me first. And so what we found is we are so much more molded into the American dream and the American Western capitalistic approach to finances than we are a kingdom approach. So therefore, we feel like we're entitled to a 3,000-square-foot house, we're entitled to two cars. We're entitled to not have to buy off the rack or at Target or a Walmart. We're entitled for our kids to go to the greatest schools. We're entitled to the gated community. We're entitled to all of this stuff. And then God understands, after all, God owns the cattle of a thousand hill and he owns the hills too. And uh, uh, he understands why I don't give. And, and we lose, we completely bail out on the relational aspect that he's like, hey, um, he said it a couple of times in the Old Testament. I'll, I'll paraphrase and condense from various prophets. But he said, hey, you're bringing to me the sheep with a broken leg and one eye and the torn ear and you're offering that as your sacrifice. And, and God says, would you bring that to your governor, your human governor? He's like, man, you wouldn't bring that jacked up sacrifice or gift to your, the governor of the land. He's like, why are you? Why are you bringing that to me? So we're not bringing sheep. If you are, come in for counseling, okay? Because that's, that's not the way we roll. But, but it is possible to bring an equally inferior or insufficient offering because we give him our torn, our lame, our blind, and we give him kind of the leftovers, what we feel we can spare. And so what we find here is that we need to be intentional and we need to be willing to bring him our very best. Now, I know that can be hard to hear because some of you have painted yourselves in a corner financially. Let me just tell you, if if, if you can get to a place where you say, Lord, I'm seeing things differently and I realize that maybe some of my financial problems because I've never really understood how to honor you or I've understood it but I forgot it or I just never did it, but, Lord, I want to now. God said, I know how to unpaint you out of a corner. Take it from a guy. When I got saved, just, you can do the math. From 14 to 24, I lived for myself. As long as I had paper checks in the checkbook, in my mind, I thought, that's money. It didn't matter if I had anything in the account. So you talk about bouncing checks. I bounced them high and hard back in the 80s and the early 90s. I did. I was lost. Don't judge me. Some of y'all are looking unclenched, you look constipated, listen, the reality is this, I I painted myself in a corner, I got saved, and I said, I owe a family member a couple of thousand dollars that I had bailed out on, I owe my bank a whole host of fees and things that I never, and I went down to that bank, they had closed the account long ago, and I said, hey, I'm Jeff Lyle, And they went, oh, a face with the name, all right, have a seat, and I said, hey, look, This is literally what I did. I said, I've gotten saved and I realized I did y'all wrong and I've come here to find out what I need to do to pay off all of those fees. And that lady just looked at me. She's like, are you serious? I was like, yeah, Jesus has saved me and I'm trying to right all my, a little Zacchaeus moment. I'm trying to right all of my wrongs. And she literally went and talked to the branch manager, came back and she said, I tell you what we're gonna do. We're going to reinstitute your account. You're going to be on probation for three months. We're going to watch it. But if you make it through those three months, and you don't bounce any more checks. We're going to waive all of those fees. But that's the Lord. That wasn't me. It's not because I was super cool. I was the dude who had bounced all the checks and stuff. But the thing was, is God unpainted me out of the corner. I went to my grandfather, who I had borrowed a bunch of money from as a lost man for a, for a 1984 Pontiac Fiero. Come on. And that car was long dead and gone, and Grandpa still didn't get his money back. And I called him up, and I said, Grandpa, I owe you a couple of thousand dollars. He let me pay him for two months when he saw that I was repenting and being real. He's like, you don't have to pay the rest of it. I've written it off. You're free. So what I'm saying is this, is when we meet God at the place of faithfulness to begin to think like He thinks in our finances, He has a whole host of resources at His disposal that He can help you with, but He's probably waiting, waiting on us to align our hearts in a moments of acknowledgement and repentance that we haven't been doing it His way. Some of us are living for the resource, and God says, why don't you live for me? I'm the source. Everything else is a resource. I'm the source. And when you live for the source, the resources will be taken care of. I promise you that. So in verse number seven, uh, he says this. Uh, let me give you verse number six. You need to have this understanding in verse number six. This is a kingdom key for giving. Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, we've, we know how this has been abused. Some people, you've never heard you've heard the sow into my ministry thing, and you're like, where does that come from? I don't know exactly where that comes from. It comes from this right here, that that the giving of our finances and the investing of our finances, the intentional release of our money into the kingdom is often described as sowing seed or casting seed. And Paul says, hey, look, there's a principle. It's It's a kingdom principle. You reap in proportion to what you sow. So you harvest in proportion to what you plant. So Paul says, hey, look, if you want to take a seed, and you want to go out there and you want to plant it in the garden, it's probably going to bring up a bush, and on that one bush there will be some other fruit in it that will bear, that will have seeds in it, and so you will get some seed back, but it's going to be in proportion. Paul says, but if, if you really want to trust the Lord in this metaphor, take as much seed as God leads you to take, and begin to sow it, and your harvest will come back great. Now, I get it. I know how this has been abused, but again, we've got to come out of this place where we, we kind of exempt ourselves from Bible teaching because some shuckster out there has abused it. Don't ever judge the validity of a doctrine based on somebody, how somebody else abused it. You have to ask, what, is it true or not? It's in the Bible, it's true, and what he's saying here is this. If you give sparingly, just okay, but just know that you'll reap sparingly. If you, if you give bountifully, you're setting yourself up to reap bountifully from this. The, the key is, is, is clear. Some of you are, are growing in your giving and you're faithful and you're, you're, you've been consistent and faithful. This may very well be a season where God says, you've proven your faithfulness. I want to entrust more to you. Do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you. Just start giving me more and I'll start sowing more. And God says, that's not trust. Well, what do you mean, Lord? He says, how about I tell you That if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully, and then you start doing it, and I'll prove I'm true. But you know how we are, right? Y'all are looking tight up there. Just exhale a little bit. Come on. We're like, no, Lord, I kind of like it the other way. You bless me, and then I'll bless you. The Lord says, I've already blessed you. You start releasing according to your confidence that I will continue to bless you and increase my blessing on you. And listen, I had a guy in the first service. We have an early service if you're new around here. And this guy has done really well. And he was an atheist 12 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago. and He got radically converted. And he, like most atheists, he's suspicious in those early days of preachers that are talking about money, and and so he had to kind of turn the corner on giving, and it took a minute, but when he did, he just started going gangbusters because he had done really well in the in the in the marketplace, retired early, and he just started saying. We are so rich compared to the rest of the world. Where can I just start? And he just started going cuckoo. So I was, I was in cuckoo in a sanctified spiritual way. When, when I was preaching this in the early service, he got me after serving. He goes, man, I so wish you would have let me on stage because it's, it's coming from you. It sounds like one thing because you're the preacher, but coming from me, it's entirely different. He, he literally tells me, he says, no matter how much he gives, he can't give it away at a proportion higher than God pours it back on him. And this is not a guy, and by the way, I mean, don't, don't just kind of blow that off because he's wealthy. What I'm saying, he's become wealthier as he gives it away. Why? Because God said he would. That's, that's the answer. Because God said he would. The issue is not whether, God's character and faithfulness is not uh, being judged here. It's our trust. Will we trust him? And for those that will trust him and trust him consistently, I promise you, you will see this come to pass in your life. We've seen it come to pass in our lives before. So in verse number seven, I know what time it is. You're always free to go. Always free to go. Don't cry like that baby on your way out, but always free to go. (laughs) I love the Sharkies. I think that was the Sharkies' newborn that was back there. Um, Look in verse seven. It says this, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly, are under compulsion. Very quickly here. Each one must give. Each one must give. Each one what? Each Christian. Each believer. Each saved person. Not each wealthy Christian. Not each Christian who has some to spare. Not each Christian who's been walking with the Lord a long time. Each Christian. Each one must give, must give, as he's made up his mind, as she's made up her mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. Here's the two extremes. One extreme is somebody gets on you and rides you until you give. Some of y'all are visiting here for the first day and you're thinking, great, first time I've been in church in a long time and dude is preaching on money. I'm just going to tell you, I ought to preach on it more. I preach on it about twice a year. 50 Sundays a year, I, I don't ever preach on it. About twice a year, I'll preach on it and today's your day. So welcome to New Bridge Church. But the compulsion is when a preacher or a leader, or an individual rides you until you finally break under the guilt and the shame and you just like, take it. Just take it. That is not a successful offering. The other extreme is the giver himself or herself that's like, I don't really want to give, but I'm reluctant to give, I'm afraid to give. What's going to happen if I do give? I know I gave $100 at the ballpark this week for my tickets and my hot dogs and my root beer, and I, I, I know, but isn't it amazing how you go to the movies and it's nothing. It's 75 bucks to get in the theater with two people and to get a popcorn and a drink. $75. When the plate is passed, you're like, 20 bucks to the Lord? Hurrah! We've gotten $20 bills in the offering before I have a little piece ripped out because it had to be plucked by a person still holding their little piece of $20. Just kidding. Totally joking. Totally joking. But the two extremes are the guy who's harping on it all the time or the other extreme is the person who really just doesn't want to do it. Listen, we're talking about our attitudes in giving. My job is not to guilt you. I hate guilt-based motivation. I don't mind anybody getting convicted by the Holy Spirit according to the Word of God. I don't want anybody guilty or shamed into doing something that God empowers them to do. Shame and guilt are a terrible motivation. You don't need to be reluctant about giving. You need to, as in every other area of your life, you need to be full of faith. And if you can't feel faith-filled, then just be faith-initiated. Just start with a mustard seed of faith and start saying, I'm going to be committed in my giving. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. (laughs) Was it this service? No, it was the first service. Dustin was praying over the offering or about to pray over the offering and he said, folks, you know what the word says? The word said, God loves a cheerful giver. And Dustin said, I heard a preacher say, but I'll take an offering from a grouch too. I thought that was funny. I've been around a minute and I've never heard that one before. Listen, what does it mean to be cheerful? It means to give with joy. It means to give with ease. It means literally like you're not freaking out because you just wasted whatever you gave. That's how the enemy operates. He actually has trained us to think that when we give, it's a loss. My friends, it's the most secure thing you can do with your money because it not only makes an eternal difference when it's combined with everybody else's giving and it's resourced into the kingdom the right way, but it actually stores up and reserves a reward for you in eternity. That Jesus, again, an opportunity to believe Jesus. You can spend it on stuff down here that rust will eat away, thieves can take from you, or moths will eat, that was in terms of their clothes. All this stuff down here, it perishes, Jesus says. Or you can you can go ahead and invest it now, and it garners for you an eternal reward. We can get our rewards down here. We can, and I don't believe that the Lord is calling us to. I don't necessarily believe he may have that calling on somebody. I don't think that there's necessarily anything spiritual about living in a constant state of poverty when you don't have to. But we are so far from that. Um, I. I don't feel guilty, I had to buy a new vehicle. I leased a vehicle uh, for three years and that lease was coming up this coming week. And so for about two months I'm like, I don't don't wanna lease, I wanna just buy a used car. So I spent two months researching. So I go to the dealership this week and this is how you negotiate a car. You tell him I've only got X amount of dollars to spend, that's your bottom number. You know you're gonna spend more than that but you don't let him know that. He knows that too by the way. But you, you say this is what I'm going to spend. And you know that somehow he's going to try to get you to come a couple of thousand dollars off of that. So I had my buffer built in. So he's walking the lot, and he's showing me these cars. And he says, I know you've got this right here. He goes, but for like $5,000 more you can get this right here. And I'm thinking, he's saying 5000 but I know it'd only be $2,000 more than what I've got up here in my head. And I start looking at that thing. Opened it up, that glorious aroma of new car smell. (laughs) I staggered a moment (laughs) under the weight of it. And he shows me all these things he got, or the car's got, and I'm like, $5,000? $5,000? And the Holy Spirit says, That's not the budget I gave you. I'm like, Don't talk to me right now, I'm looking at a car. And I hear it again. And sure enough, man, I'm like, I'm preaching on giving this weekend. I've been studying this passage for two weeks, and here I am about to spend money I don't have because I see something I want. I know none of y'all ever struggle with that, so this is just for me. I'm just confessing my sins. It says, each one must give as he made up his mind. We make up our minds about what we do with our money, and when it comes to our giving, just make up your mind and then be a Christian. Just be a Christian. Just do what you were called to do, and then do it with joy and cheer. I'm going to be done at 1 o'clock. I'm not giving an invitation. You're going to walk out of here at 1 o'clock. Here we go. Last points. Here's the expectation from exemplary giving. Because I love to talk about giving, but I love to talk more about what God does when we give. Because God is in, listen, he's the one who said it's better to give than to receive. He actually lives that out too. He says, I will receive anything that you give, but I'm a giver I love to give. And watch what it looks like. Expect God to provide. If you're going to become a giver, or if you want to grow in your giving, expect God to provide. Listen to this. This is a promise. This is a promise. God is able to make all grace Abound to you so that you having all sufficiency in all to- all things at all times, you having all sufficiency in all things at all times, God says, I will put grace on you, on your finances, if you're faithful to enter into what Paul is saying here, God says, you're going to have everything you need in every area you need it every day of the week. This is where we get to decide if we believe the scriptures or not. Now, please make sure. He said all sufficiency. He didn't say every luxury. And I think we're confused in the body of Christ in America. We've lived so long in luxury that it feels like necessity. And sometimes when you're getting aligned with the Lord, he's so sweet and so good. He'll start reorienting the way you think about things that feel like needs but aren't. He may call you to downsize. Now, listen, that may sound like blasphemy to some of you downsize. Yeah, he might. You, you actually might have to change some of what you do with your money, Then that may mean you have to buy a smaller house, drive an older car, wear last year's boots, ladies. Oh, no, no, You may not be able to have that coach purse for Christmas. I don't know who's carrying one. Don't be offended. All the ladies, some of the ladies are hiding their purses right now. I'm just saying this, it, it works all over the map. The, the reality is, as he might say, I want to bless you, but part of that blessing is I'm going I'm to retrain you on what's a necessity and what's a luxury. And it's in those moments that we, we really begin to find out how Americanized we've become. Because we're like, oh no, in order to be faithful, I'm going to have to live at a lesser level of stuff. And in those moments, what we decide reflects our true value system. And if our value system is of such that we say no to faithfulness to God and yes to an ongoing uh, uh, context of living in Americanized luxury, what we've done there is we we stop talking about giving. At that point, we start talking, what's the actual condition of our heart? Can the giver live inside of someone who refuses to give? Is that possible? God said, I'm able to make all grace abound to you and you'll have everything you need In every area you need it, all of the time. That's exactly what that verse teaches. And then he says this, that you may abound in every good work. The reason why God wants to bless you financially is because he wants to partner with you in the kingdom. You see, we think, oh God, I'm gonna give, then you're gonna pour it back out on me. I'm gonna take what you pour out. Thank you, Jesus. I got my stuff. That worked, everybody. That worked. No. The way it works is this. Yes. He pours it back out on you, and what's happened is you've entered into a partnership, and you say, I'm going to take some of this overage that he's given me, and I'm going to pour back more, and I'm going to keep pouring back. And God says, now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. Now you're learning what it means to abound in every." good work and it doesn't mean that you're not personally enriched. all you haters out there that assume that everybody that's wealthy got it by some kind of unspiritual means you need to repent. you need to repent because if you're gonna have a hard time with David, Solomon, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, you're gonna have a hard time with guys like Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea that were loaded these these people had lots of stuff and they were in the will of God. And so the reality is this, we take what we have and we keep pouring it back into the kingdom and God says, I will provide bountifully for you and I'm going to use you to provide bountifully for the kingdom. And that's verse 10. He says, God will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. That is Bible. That's not some prosperity gospel, slick, willy, charismatic preacher trying to get your money. That's the Apostle Paul. That's the word of God. And this is a promise to those of us who will keep saying yes to giving and grow in the depth of our giving. God says, I'll not only give you back the seed that you planted, I will multiply your seed for sowing. For sowing, that means I'm gonna give it back to you so you can keep planting it. Because it's going to increase in the harvest of your righteousness. And that phrase indicates that Paul was now moving this thing from a potential transactional thinking about money to a kingdom thinking about a harvest of souls, a harvest of righteousness. Think about this, 60 seconds, an ear of corn. How many of you like corn on the cob? Anybody? I like corn on the cob. Did you know that every one of those little pieces on the corn of the cob was a kernel? It was a seed. And that if you will take one of those, I had a farmer tell me this after the early service. If you will take a kernel of corn and you plant it in the ground and you cultivate it right in the right conditions, it'll grow up a stalk and it'll produce three, four, five ears of corn on it. And every one of those ears of corn from that one kernel will have 100, 200 kernels on each ear of corn. And that is the, that is the principle that we're being shown here. God's saying, will you please take that little piece of corn you got, and quit nibbling on it. Stop consuming. Trust it to me. Sow it. And when I'm done doing what I can only do, because in the natural, the only one that's bringing forth an ear of corn, he's going to use the sowing, but God's the one that controls the rain and the sun, and God says, "I'll I'll make sure it brings forth the harvest. And all of a sudden, you have three years of corn off this new thing. You planted one, and you've got 600 now. And God just says, keep planting more of it. Keep planting more of it. Keep planting more of it. Friends, listen, I didn't bring you here. I'm, uh, I'm 40 seconds over. I didn't bring you here to talk about corn. I didn't bring you here anyway. You came of your own free will. But I want you to leave thinking differently. Our hearts' attitudes... Open hearts result in open hands. And friends, closed hands may indicate a closed heart. So let's go ahead and be the people that we are living generously, sowing joyfully, and expecting graciously to receive for the Lord. Let's stand and pray. Lord, thank you just for encouraging us. Thank you that you're not an angry, scowling God in heaven demanding uh, we legalistically part with our goods. Thank you for inviting us into partnership with you that results in changed lives. It's mind-blowing, Father, but it actually promises a reward for us in heaven. I don't even understand that, but I believe it. So God, help us all to grow. From those that don't give, let them become givers after this moment. For those that have given, but have given kind of spontaneously, let them become prepared and prayerful givers. As often as they get paid, Lord, just help them to see now's the time. And Father, for those that are maturing into generosity, let them be over generous. Let them believe that you will multiply back to them everything that they release so that they can keep releasing more. So stretch our hearts and cause us to trust you at deeper levels in this area. We will not be money lovers, Lord. We will be Jesus lovers. We thank you, Lord, for your faithful shepherding of our lives, and we trust you to provide. In your name, amen.